0: Louis XIV ascended the throne when he was four years old, and he reigned for 72 years. He was famous for telling everyone about his own greatness. He's also notorious for being the one who declared, I am the state. He often sported all the trappings of greatness, but he died like all men. Still, Louis, even at the moment of his death, had made arrangements for his greatness to be on display. His instructions were that the great cathedral of Notre Dame was to be darkened, and that above his casket there would be a solitary candle which was lit. A testament to the greatness of Louis. And so it was that thousands of mourners from around the world came and filled up Notre Dame's cathedral. They hushed in silence, and through the darkness beamed that one solitary glowing candle. Eventually the service began. Songs were sung, prayers were prayed, And then at the moment of the homily, something happened that stunned the nation. The bishop who was presiding over this official act of state came out from behind the pulpit, bent over, and snuffed out the candle. Gasps filled the cathedral. Upon returning, to his station behind the pulpit in an open Bible, he pronounced four words that rang out through the darkness. Only God is great. And that's going to be the the main idea of our text this morning as we turn our attention to Acts chapter 8. Only God is great. And I'm going to exhort you this morning to get over yourself. To get over your greatness. To get over trying to be somebody and instead give yourself to Jesus. We'll work through the text in two parts. We're going to talk about Simon Magus, or the magician, and Peter the Apostle. Let's pray. I'll give you some context and whatnot and we'll get started. Father, we come before you this morning humbly as children waking their parents in the middle of the night and asking for a drink. We are thirsty and tired. And we, we just need you to meet our needs. need you to Give us grace this morning. We've come as great sinners in need of our great Savior. Come as those who have faltered and failed this week. But we thank you that you are faithful even when we are faithless, and that you've put us back on our feet again. Pray that you would forgive us our sins that you would help us to enjoy the freedom and the delight of knowing Jesus. By your word, we ask that you would shape us this morning more and more into his image. Give our attention to you. Focus our minds on you in these next moments. Cause our hearts to thrill at the beautiful cross and the magnificent resurrection of Jesus. This we pray in his name. Amen. So we're going through the book of Acts and we've summarized the whole book. As Jesus goes up, the spirit comes down and the church goes out. In chapter 1, the resurrected Jesus is teaching his disciples all about the kingdom of God and how they are going to bear witness to his victory over death and over sin in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and on to the ends of the earth. After telling them what they're going to do and how they're going to bear witness to him by the power of the Holy Spirit, he then ascends to his throne in heaven through the clouds. And it's there he sits, and it's there he rules from. It's from there he reigns. And in chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes down. So we've got Jesus has gone up, the Spirit has come down. The Spirit fills up his people, and the church is born. Forgiveness of sins through trust in Christ is proclaimed. And for the first time in history, Christians fill Jerusalem. Things are going well for the church, but what we find in the next few chapters as they unfold is the church faces great persecution. Yet in the midst of each and every persecution, the word of God prevails. The apostles are put on trial, but the word goes forth. There are widows that are being neglected within the church. It seems that a division might rip this whole thing apart. But the apostles are faithful. They give themselves to the word and prayer. They appoint deacons and unity is forged. In the face of adversity, over and over again, the word of God prevails. And then we see the persecution go to the next level in chapter 7. When Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church, He's accused of blaspheming the temple, of being anti-law, anti-Moses, and in response he preaches that really long sermon where he says, no, I am about the temple, I am about the law, but I'm about the true temple, Jesus Christ. The God that you are worshiping, he no longer meets you in the temple that's been built by your hands. He can't be constrained there. He has met us perfectly in Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is the only place where sinners can come together with God and be at peace. He is the meeting place for man and God. He is the perfect high priest who mediates a better covenant than the covenant of Moses between man and God. He is the perfect sacrifice who satisfies the wrath of God towards sin. He is the true and better temple. You've missed the point is the end of the law. The law is meant to show you that you can't make yourself right with God, but he has kept it on your behalf. He is the righteous one. And yet you have rejected him like you rejected Joseph, like you rejected Moses, but God has raised him up. And then they proceed to kill Stephen as he beholds Christ, acting out the gospel and interceding for him in heaven. We see at the beginning of chapter 8, the church is scattered and preaching. That's the main thing that we're supposed to see in these first, really all of chapter 8, and here in these first 25 verses of chapter 8, is that in God's providence, the persecution of the church Becomes the catalyst by which the gospel is proclaimed outside the walls of Jerusalem. And we went, you know, last week we went, is, you know, they're, they're being persecuted, they're scattered. Is this a terrible thing for the church? Oh no, what's God going to do? And we said, God doesn't drive an ambulance. He's sovereign. He's not going, what am I going to do? No, he planned for it. We said, look, Acts 1.8 Jesus said they're going to bear witness not only in Jerusalem, but in, well, where are they scattered? Judea, Samaria. Eventually, to the ends of the earth, God is accomplishing his purposes even amidst this great evil. And so last week, we looked at the gospel to the, the Samaritans, and that's kind of the headline of this chapter. The gospel goes to the Samaritans. The Samaritans are part of the same body of Christ as the Jews. They are united in Jesus. Right? That's kind of the big picture of Acts chapter 8. That's the headline. But, but here in chapter 8, we come to our verses today where we see this kind of subplot. We meet this man named Simon. History will remember him as Simon Magus or Simon the Magician and the father of heresies. Heresy is just, it's false belief. It's believing and preaching something that is opposed to Orthodox Christianity. Now, the, the title of Simon Magus, or Simon the Magician, is thats pretty legitimate. This guy clearly dabbles in the occult, some kind of voodoo magic. It's not sleight of hand. It's not illusions, right? He's not David Copperfield. Right? So you don't need to freak out at your next family gathering and a you know, little kid comes up and it's like, hey, pick a card. You don't need to go, whoa, <laughs> get away from me, devil in your magic. You know? Don't freak out if somebody has a Harry Potter book. No. This guy believes that he can control and manipulate the spiritual realm with spells and incantations. I said that right, didn't I? Incantations. He he thinks, and perhaps he does through some kind of demonic source of power, that he can control the spiritual realm. Okay? And apparently he does to some extent because the people are amazed by him. Right? He's somebody important, he's somebody great. And so uh, the title of Simon the magician or Simon the sorcerer, that seems fair. But what if this title? Father of heresies. This one's a little bit more complicated uh, because of the way the story plays out. Real quick in some, I'm kind of ruining the story. Usually I like to like, build to the climax, and, like tell you what happens. I think that's the best way to tell a story, uh, but I'm going to ruin it. <laughs> so what happens here is Simon is this magician. He's in Samaria, and then it seems as if he believes in verse 13 and is baptized. And then in verse 18, he asks if he can buy God the Holy Spirit, at which point Peter tells him, uh, and this is really a fair translation, you and your money can go to hell. You have no part in the people of God. And then his response in verse 24 is, doesn't exactly inspire confidence about his repentance. Okay? Okay? And so what you end up with is uh, people come to this text and uh, they're divided a little bit. Some folks will say, well, Simon, he knew Jesus. His conversion was real. He's just really immature. That's the minority. And the majority, and this is who I cast my lot with and this sermon will bear that out, believe that Simon wasn't really ever converted, that his conversion was counterfeit. And I arrive at this conclusion uh, for a variety of reasons. One is any source that you read that mentions this guy outside of the Bible is uniformly negative. There's all kinds of stories out there. Um, and so the further away they get from the biblical text, the more and more ridiculous they get. Uh, there's one that tells that Simon, in his, um, he gets into an argument with Peter down the road, and he's like, uh, Jesus and I are the same. Uh, you know what, just bury me in the ground, and in three days I'll rise again. And so he gets in the ground, and his followers bury him, and then he stays dead. Right? So that one's probably not true. Uh, but the point is to show you that all the extra-biblical literature is v- a very negative picture of this guy. Furthermore, I think the text gives us reasons to doubt the legitimacy of his conversion. I wrote them down so I don't, didn't mess them up. There's six. Uh, he's described negatively in verses 9 through 11. In verse 13, it says he believes, but there is no object provided for his belief, which this is in opposition to the Samaritans who believe in verse 12. They believe, as Philip proclaims, the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And Simon is treated separately. That's the third reason. He's he's treated separately from the rest of the Samaritans that believe. He also attempts to purchase God the Holy Spirit. He's described as someone who does not share in the people of God by Peter in verses 20-23. through And then he fails to repent in the way that Peter recommends in verse 24. All of these factors together, I think, make a pretty good case that he was not redeemed. He was not regenerated. He didn't truly believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. I don't think he ever really saw Jesus' greatness. I think he saw Jesus as a way to continue his own greatness. And so we'll get to that in a second. But I think his faith might... Well, be summed up by Jesus in the parable of the sower. Remember in Luke 8, Jesus says it this way. A sower went out to sow his seed. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path it was trampled on and the birds of the sky devoured it. Other seed fell on the rock and when it grew up, it withered away since it lacked moisture. Other seed fell among thorns. The thorns grew up with it and choked it. "'Still other seed fell on the good ground. "'When it grew up, it produced fruit, "'a hundred times what was sown. "'As he said this, he called out, "'Let anyone who has ears to hear listen.'" And then Jesus explains the parable in Luke 8:11. "'This is the meaning of the parable. "'The seed is the word of God. "'The seed along the path are those who have heard, "'and then the devil comes "'and takes away the word from their hearts "'so that they may not believe and be saved.'" And the seed on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Having no root, these believe for a while and fall away in a time of testing. As for the seed that fell among thorns, these are the ones who, when they have heard, go on their way and are choked with worries, riches, and pleasures of life and produce no mature fruit. But the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who, having heard the word with an honest and good heart, hold on to it and by enduring produce fruit. Judging by the parable of the sower, it seems as if Simon belongs to the category of the rocky soil, quickly green and quickly gone. Believes initially, and then when things don't quite go the way he wants, he falls away. Or perhaps we might put him, categorize him as that who, as thorny soil, the cares of the world choking out his apparent faith. What is clear is that even though he believes, and even though he is baptized, he does not truly believe. Simon turns out to be all about Simon and his greatness. Look with me at verse 9. Actually, verse 9 is kind of a flashback, so I'm going to give you some context. Let me read it, start at 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said. As they listened and saw the signs he was performing, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of the many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. And so here's the flashback before Simon arrived, before Philip arrived of Simon in the city, verse, five, verse 9. I'm getting tongue-tied this morning, man. Verse 9. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be... Somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, This man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. So here you have Simon in Samaria prior to the arrival of Philip, doing whatever he's doing that's amazing the people, and he's also informing them, By the way, guys, I'm great. I'm pretty great guy, right? I try that with Chelsea sometimes. It doesn't, you know how great I am? No, but, but he's like, he's like, um, there's a WWE wrestler. I don't know if he's still around. Uh, not that I ever watched wrestling. I'm trying not to confess here. Uh, but I think his name was The Miz and he used to have a little shtick because they talked to each other like a big soap opera in wrestling. And he would always come out and he'd get the microphone and he'd say, I'm The Miz and I'm awesome. Right, that was his thing. And this is what this is what Simon is doing. Anyone, I'm Simon the magician, and I'm awesome. Like, right, just a good rule of thumb. If somebody is about telling you how great they are, they're probably not that great. Furthermore, they're probably a little bit insecure. But just quickly, what I think we should see in these few verses is that we should caution ourselves about what we're impressed with, about what we pay attention to. And thinking about this, I couldn't help but recognize how in my own life, that which I give my attention to trains my heart and my mind. What you pay attention to is what you think about. And what you think about, what you set your mind and set your heart on will eventually show up in how you are living. And I can't imagine that giving their attention to someone who is all about their own greatness resulted in a lot of positive fruit in their lives. Just be careful who you are impressed with. Be careful about what you consume. What we put our attention on can lead us closer to Jesus or further away from Him. The attention of the entire city is on Simon the Great. Simon the Amazing until that jerk Philip shows up. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. So This appears to be a great victory for the gospel. Certainly many in Samaria believe, they're baptized. And then we have this note in verse 13. Even Simon believes and is baptized. And if that was the end of the story, I think we could chalk this one up. Man, this is awesome. The gospel can save anyone, and we certainly believe that. Anyone who will come to Jesus empty-handed and say, forgive me of my sins. All I have is you, Jesus. You are my Savior. You are the Lord of my life. I will follow you anywhere. Yes, anyone can be saved. The gospel is for anyone who will get weak enough to entrust themselves to Jesus Christ. Anyone can be saved. It'll show up with, with Saul who wrote most of the New Testament after persecuting the church. But it turns out, as we looked ahead already, not to be the case in the case of Simon. And with that knowledge, these, this text, it reads a little different when we consider some of the details. Details like verse 6 the crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said. And then we juxtapose that with verse 10, what we read about Simon. They all paid attention to him. Or verse 11, they were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries. And verse 13, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed. Simon the amazing is now the one who's amazed by what Philip is doing. The people followed Simon because he was able to amaze them. And now, Philip has showed up doing something more amazing. And so everybody is believing in Jesus and being baptized, and it's a, we don't have to do a whole lot of thinking to figure out how Simon gets to where he is, right? He can read the writing on the wall. This guy seems to be more powerful than me. Everybody else is pretty amazed. I need to figure this out. My, you know, i got to figure some things out. I'll believe in Jesus. Oh, you, you say he's God? Okay, I'm, look what they called him in verse 10, the great power of God. Oh, it's another guy that thinks he's the great power of God. Sure, I'll believe, I'll, we we do this ritual. I'm, I'm in, I'm not going to make anybody mad, but I am going to pal around with Philip. And I'm going to figure out how he's doing these signs and these great miracles and these wonders. Simon doesn't come to Jesus for Jesus. He comes to Jesus for the signs. It's like if I'm sitting with one of my children and I point out the window, look, one of our two groundhogs. That's that's the kind of exotic animal you get around here. One of the two groundhogs is standing on his hind legs. And instead of looking out the window at the groundhog, he's looking at my finger. Like, what are you talking about, Dad? Probably when they're younger, like baby age. And the point is, is that they get obsessed with the sign, but not what the sign is pointing to. You with me? And this is what Simon has done. He, he is obsessed with the power of the Spirit, with these amazing works so much so that he misses the amazing God that they're meant to point him to. He thinks, I'll come to Jesus because Jesus will help me be more amazing. It'll be good for my brand. I can learn these tricks. What about you? come to Jesus because you think he'll make you more amazing? That he'll help you to be somebody? Somebody great? And do you come to Jesus because you think somehow coming to Jesus will help you get more of what you already have? More of what you already want? I think we're so guilty of being motivated like Simon, being about my brand. and I'm. Listen, you can confess at some point in your life, you've wanted to be somebody important. You've measured how important you are on all just basis of all kinds of ridiculous things. How big your family is, how close knit it is, your job your Facebook friends, Twitter followers, what you do, the house you live in, the car you drive, the things you're able to do. You've gone, this is what makes me somebody. As Christians, what we're supposed, what's supposed to happen when we come to Jesus, we're supposed to go, that's not who I am. I don't measure my identity based on all of these external things. I'm happy to be a nobody because Jesus is all the somebody I need. He's who gives me my identity and my sense of worth. I don't need to be somebody because he is great. I don't need to be worried about my greatness because he is glorious. I think as Christians, we need to always be asking ourselves, am I following Jesus Because I think he's going to help me be somebody or make my life great? Or am I following him because he is great? Do I want Jesus or do I want the stuff I think Jesus will give me? Simon is after the stuff he thinks Jesus will give him. Look at verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon has a misunderstanding of the gospel, has a misunderstanding about how things work in the church. He says, these guys have this power. I want this power. I want the spirit and I want the ability to give the spirit to others just like the apostles. His first mistake is thinking that the apostles have any kind of control over the Holy Spirit of God. No, no, no. The spirit of God is controlled by no man and nothing. No thing might sound better. Uh, nothing. God is free. He does Ever he pleases; he cannot be manipulated. The apostles don't control God. Yes, do, do they pray and ask God to bestow His Spirit on others? Do they work and act in the name of Jesus? And God, in His kindness, is happy to act in response to their prayers. Certainly, that happens. But God is not forced or coerced into obeying them. That's not God cannot be controlled. He's not a tame lion. The second mistake is his thinking that somehow money can buy him place in the church. Buy him these abilities. This is where we get the term simony from. Maybe you've heard that. That refers to the medieval practice in the Catholic church where people would actually buy church offices. and They called it simony based on this passage. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to buy a place among the apostles. It doesn't work that way. God cannot be bought, He cannot be controlled. The gift of God is not for sale. Jesus has purchased reconciliation with God by His blood. It can only be received as a gift. It can't be obtained by effort. It can't be obtained by your good works. It can only be received by those who are weak enough to receive it. To try to purchase God is asinine, ignorant, stupid. Yet that's what Simon tries to do, and that's what many false teachers lead many Christians to believe they can do. You've heard it. Sow a faith seed, and if you believe enough, that money's going to come right back to you. Believe enough, and whatever you are believing God for, well, he's going to have to give it to you. And this theology is, is prevalent in our country. It's called prosperity theology. It's the idea that God... It's going to bless you with whatever your little heart desires if you just believe enough. That's what he's ab- about. It's just so not true, and I always want to respond, like, I guess Jesus didn't believe enough since he ended up dead on the cross. I guess Stephen didn't believe enough since he ended up martyr. I guess Paul didn't believe enough since he had to carry around that thorn in his flesh the rest of his life. The theology doesn't make sense here and now, and it doesn't, didn't make sense in Peter's day. God cannot be controlled by money. Simon wants to purchase the gift of the Spirit, and the reason he does this is he understands his career is at stake, okay? He, he's done all the radio hits, he's done the social media blitz, he's gone on Oprah, he's done all these things to build his career, and now he recognizes if these Christians get around, and they continue to spread out, and they do more amazing things than me, everyone's going to forget about me. They're going to forget about my greatness. You see, Simon's not ready to be nobody. Simon thinks he's somebody great. And so he has to take hold of this ability. He offers money for it. That was the usual thing in his profession. You would uh, buy secrets and secret recipes and incantations from other magicians in the field. It's common. And so he thinks the same thing applies here. But what he doesn't understand is that God the Holy Spirit is different than his magic. Significantly so. Peter rebukes him sternly in verse 20. But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Is Peter just a jerk? Like, doesn't he know Matthew seven? Right? I think everybody knows Matthew seven. Yes, Peter did too. No, he's not a jerk. I think more people know Matthew seven one than John three sixteen. It's "Judge not, lest thou be judged." Right? Judge not, lest thou be judged. What is Peter doing here? Shouldn't Simon just respond to him? Judge not, Peter lest thou be judged. I think that's based on a really poor reading of Matthew 7 where Jesus says this because he keeps talking. And remember, when we're interpreting the Bible and we're trying to figure out what it means, context is king. It dictates meaning. So let's read it in context. It's just five verses in Matthew 7. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite. And listen what he says. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye, why? And then, so that you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. And so Jesus isn't saying don't make judgments, don't call anyone to correction. He's saying repent of your own sin and be as gracious to others in your judgment and in calling them to repentance as God has been with you. Lovingly call people to follow me, that's what Jesus is saying. And so we want to correct in kindness. And that's, that's what Peter is doing here. A young boy runs inside to his mother, tears in his eyes. Mommy, he says. My foot hurt. So his mother, being the kind and gentle woman that she is, scoops up the young child in her arms. Does your foot hurts, show me. And so the child presents his big toe. And there she finds a small splinter. The area is reddened and a little swollen. It's begun to hurt the child. Mommy says, Okay, let me go get the needle and the tweezers, and we'll we'll take it out. At which point, the little boy says, Judge not, lest thou be judged, mommy, and runs out of the room. Friends, there will come times in our Christian life where we will be the ones with the tweezers and the needle, and we will need to kindly and gently remove splinters from one another's lives as a mother removes a splinter from the toe of her son. And there will be other times when we are the one with the splinter. And so when one of your brothers or sisters comes to you with tweezers and a needle, the right response is not, Judge not! And kicking and screaming and running away. The proper response is to invite correction. That's hard. Husbands, how do you do when your wife corrects sin in your life? Wives? How do you do when your friends correct you? Judge not! Or do you invite it? Children, how do you do when your parents correct you? You scream? Or do you invite that correction as the kindness of God to you? Only a fool rejects correction. Proverbs 9.8 says, Don't rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke the wise, and he will love you. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy. And the physician's scalpel cuts to heal. The tweezers and the needle are for your good. Because guess what? If you leave that splinter in there, it's going to get infected, and it's going to hurt you worse. As Christians, we lovingly correct one another and we lovingly invite correction into our lives because we want to be holy like Jesus. And we don't want sin to destroy us. Invite correction. That's not what Simon does here. Peter tells him sharply, you and your money can go to hell. God cannot be bought. Your heart is not right. You are caught in bitter envy. You are in the bonds of wickedness. You don't have any part in the people of God. Repent so that you can be forgiven. Come to Jesus. Pray. And Simon says, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Notice he refuses to pray for himself. And instead, tells Peter to pray for him. Peter's like, hey, you got to pray, you've got to come to God, you've got to put your faith in Jesus. And Simon says, I'm not going to do that, you pray for me. Maybe you've done this, or maybe you've been around people like this in your life, where you, you're trying to offer them spiritual counsel. You say, come to Jesus. It's what you need. And they shrug and go, no. You, you pray for me, though. It comes a point where we have to put our faith in Jesus we have to decide that Jesus is first and I am second where we have to take up our cross and follow him and Simon well he can't can deny himself he's somebody great so he tells Peter no you you pray for me this is a wrong response to correction I think it's seen really, really brightly when we consider who Peter is. When we contrast the reaction to rebuke of Simon the magician with that of Simon Peter who knows what it is to be corrected sternly. Jesus once said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You have on your mind not the things of God, but the things of men. And he continued your hindrance to me. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Peter, though in sin, continues to follow Jesus. He continues to repent the rest of his life. Yes, he screws up. He denies Jesus. Yes, He stumbles and falls, but again and again, he repents, and he continues to follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the mark of true conversion is a lifelong walk with Jesus. You can have made a profession of faith and be baptized and be far from Jesus. Something to consider. This is why as a church, when uh, new believers come to us, we try to pump the brakes a little bit, make sure that they're really believing in Jesus. And then when they are, when we consider them as candidates for baptism, we say, or I'll say, I think you've become a Christian. And they'll say something, "I I I I think I'm a Christian too. I'll say, that's awesome, praise God. We'll see how the rest of your life plays out because that, the proof will be in the pudding if you continue following Jesus. You'll prove yourself true or false. Peter responds to correction with repentance. I think Martin Luther rightly said the whole of the Christian life is repentance. It's daily Weekly, yearly, resolving to follow Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, I ask you, are you following Jesus still? Because you need him just as much today as you did on the first day you believed. What is your life about? Is your life about your career or your greatness? Examine its fruits. What do you spend your time on? What do you pay attention to? Friend, are you about your greatness being somebody? Only God is great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the scriptures which are able to make us wise unto salvation. Thank you most of all for Jesus, for the cross, where he died for messy people like us. We thank you, though, imperfect as we are, that you still love us, that your steadfast love endures, that you're faithful even when we are faithless. We pray that you would fill us with your Spirit, and enable us to follow you all the days of our lives. We pray that we would be about your greatness, that you would be the priority in our lives, not ourselves. We confess to pursuing selfish ambitions, pursuing things in this world that we've deemed more important than you. But now as we gather, we declare by our gathering and our preaching and our praying that that you are the Lord of our lives. And we want to follow you. And so we ask that you would help us to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. We ask you that you would help us to continue repenting. We ask that you would help us to correct one another when necessary. And always to be inviting correction. So that we might be more like Jesus. That we might become in practice what you've declared us. Holy. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.